you've got your Bibles, turn with me to the book of John. The fifth chapter of John. We've been in this series, we started a couple of weeks ago, talking about the miraculous things that Jesus does on the way to the cross. Even in the book of John, he's got seven miracles that Jesus performs on his way to Jerusalem, on the way to the cross. And we're going to look at those over the next several weeks and talk about what that means for us and how we can find comfort and strength and hope in the midst of that. And uh, each week we've kind of started off with a history lesson talking about presidential stuff. But today we're going to talk about a guy that's not a president, but is an important guy in history. And it's this guy who is Evan O'Neill Kane. Now, Evan O'Neill Kane was a surgeon who in the early 1900s performed over 4,000 surgeries, but became concerned about a practice that was happening everywhere. You see, in that day, the only way that you could have surgery is if you put people all the way under what they call general anesthesia. How many of you have ever been put to sleep for a... Yeah. And so they, that's the only way they knew to do surgery. And so he became concerned because he saw some of his patients that needed to have surgeries that couldn't have surgeries because they, they heart condition or their mental state, they couldn't undergo general anesthesia. And so he formulated that you could numb or just put to sleep certain areas of the body and then perform a surgery on that. He decided to test it out. And on February 15th, 1921, he took the patient into the room. He locally anesthetized the area. He slit open the area to cut off the the blood flow there and removed the appendix of the patient. Here's what's remarkable about that. Who is this? That's him. Who's he doing surgery on? Himself. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? Anybody here want to take their own appendix out real quick? And so he proved by doing it on himself, because nobody else would do it, that you could do this local anesthesia, and it has become practice throughout hospitals since then. Up until 1968, there were only two or three ways to do this event called the high jump, and none of them were really spectacular. There was the western roll, the scissors method, or this, that was called the straddle method. People would run up and jump. That looks very dangerous. Looks like an America's Funniest Home Video waiting to happen. And in 1968, there was a guy that thought, you know what, I could do it better. He went to his coach a few years earlier, and the coach said, you really can't, I don't advise that. But he started doing it anyways. He was too tall. He was, his name was uh, Dick Fosbury, and he was too tall to do that. And so he started to jump with his back arched over the bar. He would run and then turn backwards and jump. And here's what happened. In 1968, the Olympics were held in Mexico City, and he broke this out for the first time, won the gold medal, and set a world record in the process. A few years earlier, like July 29, 1588, there was a group of ships that decided they were going to attack England from Spain. They were considered the greatest Naval army in the world, the Spanish Armada, they were called the Invincible Army. And they went to make England a part of Spain and to colonize it. Then on their way, they thought there's no way the English can defeat us. They don't have a good navy. The problem is 
The Spanish Armada fought like it had been fought for years. They would drive up next to a ship, put up next to it, board the ship, take over the ship, and then burn it. The English had invented something the Spanish didn't know about, and they were able to fire ammunition from long distances. And as the Spanish Armada went into English waters, the Armada was sunk without a single English ship going down. Now, what do those three stories have to do with anything? They all involve people who had to bend the rules, think outside the box, do something different in order to accomplish what they wanted to accomplish. You got a guy performing surgery on himself, a guy inventing a new way to do a sport, and ships that came up with a new way to fight. It causes us to remember that sometimes you have to think outside the box. And I don't know if you know where that term comes from, but it comes from this nine-dot puzzle. Anybody ever seen this puzzle? And the goal of the puzzle is to connect every dot one time using four lines and never lifting your pencil. We ain't got time for you to try it right now, all right? But this is how you solve it. Now, notice what you have to do. You've got to start outside the dot, go up to the top, come down below the dot, up here, and across. The term thinking outside the box literally comes from this puzzle. Because when most people see, go back to the previous slide, the problem. When most people see this, you naturally see what? A box. And your mind only will allow you to draw inside the box. When to solve it, you've got to go to the next slide. You've got to go outside the box. Here's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at a story in Scripture when Jesus colors outside the lines to accomplish what needs to be accomplished. In fact, he breaks some rules to do it. Here's what I've kind of observed in life. In general, people are one of two things. They're either a rule follower or a rule breaker, right? And here's the thing that I've also noticed. A lot of times they marry each other, right? So rule followers marry rule breakers, and there's a tension there. I've also discovered this. Your kids are not going to be the same. One of them will be one and one will be the other. Anybody ever had a rule breaker kid? Like one of those kids that when you tell them a rule, in their mind they're thinking, how can I get around that rule? How many of you ever had one of those kids, all right? If you don't have one, we can, I can loan you a couple, all right? You just, they are there. How many of you have one of those kids that they have to follow the rules? How many of you got one of those? That they can't, any, you can't go outside a lot, like, and they will even come to you and say, but you said this and he's doing that, like tattling on brothers. And it's just the idea that the rule might be broken, they cannot understand it. What are you? You a rule follower? How many of you are rule followers? How many of you are rule breakers? Rebels. Breaking the law, right? Look at John chapter 5. It'll be up on the screen if you don't have a Bible with you, but here it is. 
After this, there was a feast of the Jews. Now, just so you know, we're starting a whole new section of John. I know it doesn't look like that when you just look in your Bible. But in the first four chapters, Jesus is reinterpreting normal lifestyle things that the Jews do. Wedding ceremony. He, he talks about Samaritans. He's uh, healing from a distance. He's not doing conventional stuff. He's overturning tables in their temple. But when it comes to this section, he's going to reinterpret every one of their major feasts. Now, we don't understand that because we have like holidays spread throughout, but they had like four major holidays every year. It would be like us having four weeks of Christmas spread throughout the year. You know how the world completely changes for Christmas, the music changes, the decorations change. They would have had four of those throughout the year. And so when it says that it was time for a feast of the Jews, we don't know which one it is. He's part of everybody going up to Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, on the north side, there's this thing called the Sheep Gate. In Aramaic, it was called Bethesda, a pool that was there, which has five roof colonnades, and in there lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Just so you know, on the north side of Jerusalem, you have to remember that their cities were walled in. And on the north side of Jerusalem, at one of the walls, there was a gate. And at that gate, next to it were these two huge pools. And in it, the water would sometimes stir. And so people thought there were healing powers in those waters. And so they came and just waited around them to try to get a chance. Hundreds, perhaps. In fact, if you can get a a picture of, of just these large pools and hundreds or a thousand people in need gathered around. Walking through there would have been walking through like a mass of humanity, all hurting, all sick, blind, lame, paralyzed. Here's what happens. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. What does it mean to be an invalid? Can't get around. Can't walk, can't move. You can't do anything for yourselves. You are completely at the mercy of someone else. Now, 38 years. That's a long time. Just a quick question. How long ago was 38 years? What year would it have been? 77. Right? 1977. How many of you were alive in 1977? How many of you were not alive in 1977? Y'all are so young right here. I was alive in 77. I mean, think about how long, just to give you a picture of how long ago we're talking about, I thought we'd look at some of the things that were happening in 1977. For instance, President of the United States was Jimmy Carter, right? Born again president. People were wearing this kind of stuff. Look at those. I've ordered Susan and I a couple of these matching shirts right here. I'm going to wear those around. And then that's some... Some stylish stuff, right? It's groovy, that's right. It's Disco era was in full effect. Look at those disco sets in the top. Don't those guys, I mean, look at that. Hair was big, you know, puffy, everything going. Just so you know, just kind of some economic stuff. Gas was 65 cents a gallon in 1977. Bread was 32 cents a loaf. People were watching this at the movie because it just came out. And a franchise was born. And while people were cruising around, talking about Star Wars, thinking about it, they were listening to this on their radio. Woo! You're welcome.
That's a long time ago, right? I was one year old, 38 years ago. A lot's changed in 38 years. Can you imagine 38 years of being completely at the mercy of somebody else? Now, just to let you know, that was really unusual because the life expectancy for people in this day and time, back then in Jesus' time, was somewhere around 30 years. Now, part of that was because so many children died at birth. So if you made it to two years old, if you survived until two years old, you could expect to live all the way to the ripe old age of 40. So for this guy, he has spent the majority, no matter how much longer he lives after this encounter of his life, completely at the mercy of somebody else. That passage of Scripture says there was a man there who was an invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there, knew that he had already been there a long time, he asked him one of the most important questions in Scripture, do you want to be healed? Now, let's just talk about this for a second, all right? You've been an invalid for 38 years, and somebody asks you the question, do you want to be healed? What is the answer? Well, that's what you think the answer is, all right? Absolutely, without a doubt, yes, I want to. Can you do that? So the question is, why does Jesus even ask that? I mean, isn't that one of those questions you don't have to ask because you already know? I think Jesus asked the question because he knows that deep down in the midst of who we are, our biggest enemy to change and to seeing our lives move forward is ourselves. He looks directly at him and says, do you want something better? Do you want something new? Do you want something different? A few years ago, some medical professionals gathered together. And the whole purpose of them gathering together was to figure out what they could do medically to help people's quantity of life, how long they live, and quality of life, how well they live. And their goal was to get people to the average expectancy of a life to be about 100. That's what they were talking about. And as they talked through the issues, they were looking at medical procedures, they were thinking about tests, and they came out of it and they had this conclusion and they said it is both an encouraging and a discouraging solution. They said the five most important factors to people living longer are all under the control of the individual. And there's nothing we can do about it in the medical profession. He said it determines by how much you eat, how you sleep, whether you drink or smoke, and whether you exercise at all. And he said, as doctors, there's nothing we can do if the individuals don't want to do it for themselves. Another medical study came out and just tracked patients that had had coronary bypass operations. Now, you know what coronary bypass operation is, right? That means you had a, close to a heart attack or had a heart attack. They rerouted your arteries because the other ones are so clogged they needed to give pathways for the blood to flow into your body. And they evaluated these people that had, had coronary bypass surgery two years after the surgery, and they discovered that 80% had made no changes in their lifestyle. You see, Jesus has to ask the question to the guy, do you want to be healed? Because he asked that same thing to us, and sometimes we say no. Some of you here are dealing with a financial issue, and you know the solution to it. You know what you need to do, but you're not ready to be healed. 
Some of you here in a relationship, you're in a marriage, and you know it's struggling, you know it's going bad, that you can see down the road what's happening, and you know what needs to change in order for that to be better, and yet you are not taking those steps. Some of you are here are addicted to pornography. And you know it's the wrong thing to do. And every time you open up the computer, it's sitting there and you know and you know you need to get help and you know it's not the right thing to be doing. But you also like it more than you would let on. Some of you here are holding a grudge that you know is not good for you or your relationships or your health. And there's a part of you that even though you know you need to let go of it, you like holding on to it. In fact, if we're honest with ourselves, there are sins in our lives, there are moments in our lives, there are things in our lives that we do that we like a little too much to let go of. And while it seems ridiculous for a guy that's been an invalid for 38 years to even have a question of, do you want to be healed? When you hear his answer in a minute, it's almost like he's become accustomed to who he is. And instead of trying something different and new and really getting healing, he would be okay being where he is. This past Wednesday night, um, we had a, kind of a small crowd because the snow was coming in and all that was happening. And we were in here talking about Moses. Well, my favorite passage of Scripture comes in Exodus 14. And as they're there, Moses gets there and they're at the Red Sea and the Red Sea is before them. And they turn around and Pharaoh's army's coming behind them. And the people all come to Moses and they start complaining that Moses has taken them out of slavery. And one of the things they said is, we never asked for this. We didn't ask you to do this. You just made us do it. And we wish we could go back to Egypt. We wish we could go back and be slaves. And the point of that story is, sometimes people enjoy where they are so much, they're not willing to look at what God wants to do in their lives to expand who they are. Do you want to be healed? That friendship, that relationship, that addiction, are you ready to have it taken away? Do you want to be healed? You see, the first step to God doing anything in our lives, to Jesus doing anything in this man's lives, is we must decide we want help. There are some that, that come to me and, and they'll tell me their situation and, and I'll suggest there are things that you could do, this could happen, this could happen, and I can tell even from the moment I have the discussion with them that nothing's going to change because they don't want to do what's necessary to see change. Just ask the simple question, do you really want help? I think it's interesting. The sick man answered him. Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. They, they thought that every once in a while the water would stir. There's even this kind of apocryphal, this kind of mythical story out there that an angel's wings would stir it. And when it stirred it, if you stepped in, the first person in the pool got healed. He says, listen, I don't have anybody to put me in the pool when it's stirred. So while I'm going, while I'm trying, while I'm literally rolling down there, someone else steps in before me. That's his answer to the question. Do you want to be healed? His answer is basically, yeah, that'd be great, but I, it's not going to happen. I don't got anybody to help. I'm by myself. I'm, woe is me. Nothing good is happening. And Jesus is looking at him as the Son of God, the one who created the world, and is saying to him, do you want to be healed? And he can only think of the limitations in his own life. He is limiting what Jesus is able to do. He thinks... I read this week that in a commentary one place that said, this man has a completely invalid understanding of the grace of God. He thinks that if I can just put enough work in and do it fast enough, then I'll be healed. 
And Jesus is there ready to offer something completely new and great without any work at all. But before he gets there, this man had to realize that there's nothing he could do on his own about it. I mentioned some of that stuff that people are struggling with. And here's the thing. There has to come a point when you realize you come to God and say, I can't do anything about it. Jesus says, do you want to be healed? He says, I'd love to, but I can't. I can't do enough to get there. I can't be good enough to get down to the water. And Jesus looks at him and says, that doesn't matter. In fact, Jesus looks at him and says, get up, take your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now, quick question here. This is not a hard question, but I need your help on it. What did the man have to do in order for the healing to be complete? What, what was his requirement? Get up. Jesus healed him and then says, to prove it, get up. Now, here's the thing. The man had no part in the healing itself, right? Are, are you here, right? He had no part in the healing himself. But Jesus says, I want to see your faith. I want to see your belief. Get up, pick up your mat and walk. I want you to picture this scene. 38 years laying on his back, can't move, has to have somebody carry him everywhere. Jesus looks at him and says, stand up, tick up your mat and walk. Imagine, if you will, he stands to his feet, confidently looks, puts the mat, it rolls it up, puts it on his shoulder and is ready to walk out of that pool completely healed. When we come to the place where we know we need help and we ask Jesus and say we can't do it ourselves and he asks us and tells us what to do the next thing is we must obey we must obey now that's very little part in what happens in conversion Jesus calls us he saves us he paid for our debt on the cross he rose again from the grave to conquer death he offers us salvation he lays it out for us and he says that we are saved by grace through faith tiny bit of us saying, I accept what you have done, Lord. I obey. Now, if that was the end of the story, it'd be great, but it's not. Look what happens next. Now, that day was the Sabbath. Y'all aren't a very good crowd. Because if I were to read this to Jewish people of Jesus' day, and it says, now that day was the Sabbath, they would have been shocked and surprised and would have verbally expressed that. We're going to try it. I don't have a lot of confidence, but we're going to try it, all right? I need your best expression of surprise when I read that word. Now, that day was the Sabbath. Yes. All right. Sounded like some of you are about... Look, at, look, I can't even do it without coughing. I was like... <laughs> Everybody get settled down now. We're going to do it one more time. I want it big this time. You got to excuse yourself for the coffin. You got to leave. All right. Just now that day was the Sabbath. There we go. That's better. Never. Right. You didn't do anything on the Sabbath. Look what they say to him. The Jews said to the man who had been healed. I mean, just think about that. Take that for a second. The Jews say to the man, what's the first thing you would say to a man you know had been healed who had been sick for 38 years? Wow, that's amazing. Great how that happened. That's not what they say. They say to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to take up your bed. 
that's a killjoy, isn't it? I can see this guy like at the pools. He sticks his mat up. He's like walk out. Like he's not walking. He is strutting, right? Like I'm shaking the leg every night. Look at them. Woo, it's working. They're like walking, and the guy goes, "Hey, wait, 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 what are you doing? You can't be walking. What do you mean I can't be walking? I ain't walked in 38 years. Well, the Sabbath law. Well, first of all, just an explanation." It wasn't the Sabbath law. In the Bible, there's nothing about it. But they come up with their own rules. There were 39 specific actions you could not do on the Sabbath. And number 39 was that you could not carry a load that you wouldn't ordinarily carry. This guy hadn't carried his mat in 38 years. So this was a load he wouldn't ordinarily carry. And they stop him and they say, It's not lawful for you to take up your bed. Isn't it obvious here that the rules that these people were following got in the way of experiencing an incredible moment with God? I mean, it's so obvious to see it here, and yet it's so difficult to understand it in our own lives. Here's what Jesus is going to show them in just a brief time, and then we're done. He's going to show them that sometimes to change your world, you have to break some rules. Some of you rule followers out there are cringing right now. No, never. It's never okay. um, There's a new show that came on television last week that had an interesting dialogue about this very thing. The show is called Last Man on Earth, and it's a comedy. It's on um, TV. It's only had one episode on. But the premise of the show is that one of the guys is the last man on earth, all right? There's some kind of virus that wipes out everybody else. And the first part of it is him touring all over America, just putting up signs, alive in Tucson. So if anybody else is out there, they'll see it and they'll come. He drives all over. And while he's there, he also takes whatever he wants from people's houses or stores or whatever, because nobody else is around. He gets back home. Suddenly, there's a woman who has survived and she finds him. She moves into the house in the gated subdivision right next to him because nobody else is around to have it. And she comes over to his house one day and says, hey... We need to go to the store because we got to fix some stuff up at our house. Both of our houses need some fixing up. You got a vehicle. You need me to take me to the store. So they go to the store and he parks in the very first parking spot. And she says, you can't park here. And he's, Why? Why can't I park here? She says, because it's a handicapped spot. He says, are you serious? We are literally the last two people on the earth. If a handicapped person comes up, there are four other handicapped spots they can go to. And she said, it's the principle of it. And he gets off infuriated. They have this discussion. He says, you're right. I don't like this spot anymore. He pulls out and he drives into the front door of the building. He says, I like this. It's closer. She said, go park in a spot. And then they had this discussion, and she says to him, she says, would you burn down a church? He said, no. She said, why not? He said, because it's a church. He said, and that's a handicapped spot. Go park in a regular one. And it's just this whole disagreement between a rule follower and a rule breaker. You can have a nice discussion at lunch about whether you'd park in the handicapped spot or not. But the point is, Jesus was the guy that said, I'm going to drive through the front door. They had rules about what you could do on the Sabbath and what you couldn't do on the Sabbath. And to break them was, wasn't even close to being right. They thought, they literally thought 
that a new day was coming. Almost like we talk about the second homecoming of Christ. They thought a new day was coming, and they thought what would usher it in is when every Jewish person observed one Sabbath perfectly. And so for this to be a broken thing, and for someone to tell people you could break the Sabbath, that was completely outside of their rules. So they ask him, who did this to you? And Jesus says, I don't know. Some guy told me to take it up. You really ought to talk to him. And they said, well, who was the man who said that? And the guy who had healed did not know, for Jesus had withdrawn. I love this picture of Jesus in the Scripture. It's almost like he does a drive-by healing, like a heal and run, like he heals and then he kind of gets back. It says he doesn't see him. This will happen, by the way. A couple more weeks we'll talk about the man born blind. And they say, who was this that healed him? And he says, I don't know. I didn't see him. All right. So the man who had been healed did not know who it was for Jesus had withdrawn. There was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said, see, you are well. I don't understand this next verse at all, although I will say this. It probably means that whatever caused him to be an invalid was a result of some sort of sin. Jesus makes clear that not all ailments, not all problems, not all illnesses are because of sin. But in this case, it seems that he did something or somehow that sin was involved in making him an invalid. And he says, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. His idea is that there are things worse than being an invalid for 38 years, like eternal separation from God. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. Notice this guy. He is a stand-up guy, isn't he? Turns Jesus in first chance he gets. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Thank you. There we go. And Jesus answered, and this is really going to make him mad. I know you just reading that's in yellow there. It's not going to make you mad. It's not one of those things that you go, I can see how they got infuriated. But they got infuriated when he said this. My father is working until now, and so am I. This is why that infuriated him. You see, the Sabbath was created because, you remember in creation, God used six days, he created the world, and the seventh day he rested. The Sabbath is to commemorate God's rest. Well, they came up with this problem because it says you can't work on the Sabbath. You've got to rest on the Sabbath because God commanded to rest on the Sabbath. But they said, but what does God do on the Sabbath? There were pages and discussions and years spent deciding what God did on the Sabbath. And here was their problem. If God rests, then who keeps the universe going? And so they came up with this idea that God was outside the Sabbath, so he wasn't under the rules of the Sabbath, so he kept working until then. So when Jesus says, my father is working unto now, he's saying God kept working. They're like, oh yeah. But then they think, wait a minute, is he saying that he is outside the Sabbath and no longer under the rules? Does that mean he is greater than us? Does that mean he's equal with God? And not only that, he called him my father. We can't do that. And suddenly in one sentence, Jesus goes from being a guy who was a little bit of a nuisance and a curiosity to a guy they had to get rid of. He was a guy out there telling them they didn't have to follow the rules, that he himself was God, and he now made the rules up for them. In fact, this is what it says. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to... It's the first time we hear about them killing him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, that's bad enough. But he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now, here's the thing. 
we read these stories in the Bible and they seem great. And the truth is, even sometimes it's hard to get our head around the, the claims of the miracles that happen. A man who hadn't walked for 38 years. In fact, as we walk week from week, so we go from the water into wine, into the official son that's healed, into this man who's 38 years. As we move week to week, the miracles become more unbelievable. Every week stacks upon itself and you look at it like, wow. And at some point, even in our minds, we're like, man, that'd be awesome to see. But even I have a hard time kind of understanding what happened there. Here's the thing. More important than believing or understanding what happened in the specific miracle is understanding and believing what it says about the one who was doing it. And what Jesus did in healing on the Sabbath didn't show just his power over this illness, over this infirmity, over this invalid. It showed that he and his dad were one and that he is equal with God. And just to be quite honest with you, if that's a statement that you believe with everything you are, it absolutely changes your life. So here's the question. Do you want to be healed? Is there something in your life you need changed? Is there something in your life you need transformed? Is there something in your life you need Jesus to do? Are you willing to admit that you're at the end of yourselves, you can't do anything about it, and you're willing to do whatever he asks you to do because he is the God of the universe? Let's pray together.